Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, terrorism, ISIS, and the Iraq War. So, Richard, in the aftermath of the Paris terror attacks, uh, President Obama has been very forceful about the argument that his counterterrorism strategy is is working, that it doesn't need to be changed, that if anything, it just needs to be sort of stepped up, looming large over all the president's decisions and really over his entire career is the legacy of the Iraq war, the most recent Iraq war, central to his election, seems to be central to the way he conceives of international relations. You suggest though in your most recent piece at Defining Ideas that the analysis there may be more complicated than the president makes it out to be. And the Iraq war obviously in a sense is, is more than one thing. So let's sort of take this in pieces. Let's start with the initial decision to invade Iraq, which by President Obama and a lot of his sympathists is sort of treated as a kind of original sin in getting us to where we are today in American foreign policy. Well, I think one of the problems is even if you call it an original sin, which is doubtful, you always have to ask whether or not it's been expiated by some intervening events so that the president has to stand or fall on his own. Um, I can recall the debates over this, as everybody did. Um, I was amazingly muted on the question because my view about myself was that I did not have then the information to decide whether or not the threat of weapons of mass destruction was credible or not. Um, I remember going to many Hoover deliberations and talking to people there who actually knew something about it, and they were much more freaked out than I was at the time about the possibility. I can recall one comment saying, of course he stashed them somewhere. Iraq is a the size of California and there are a lot of places in which you can hide this stuff and we have to go in there and find it out. There were other people who were more skeptical and my own view was I just simply did not know enough. If the threat was serious, I could see why you'd go in. If it weren't, I could not. I, I couldn't see why you would. I was somewhat upset about what I thought the language that George Bush had of asking for trouble when he talked in the previous year, I think it was in 2002, about the axis of evil, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. Obviously, Iran and Iraq have been opposites of one another on a very long period of time, particularly when Saddam was in power. So that didn't resonate night. And so when it all happened one way or another, uh, the initial question was, A, is it justified? And B, would it get you involved in a land war from which you'd never escape? I spoke to enough military people um, who said that this would be a repetition of what happened in 1991. That is a much easier military victory than you had thought. And one of the explanations they gave was that the technology on the American side, one missile per target as opposed to one in 10 missiles per target um, since 1991, uh, made a huge difference and that Saddam's army was not being kept up in exactly the same way. All of that stuff essentially proved to be true. So if you're asking me whether the stuff was a disaster, it's clear that the war itself was not a disaster. It may have been a mistake. The question then is what about what happens afterwards? Well, the next step there, of course, after things went sideways for a while was the surge. And as you point out in your column in Defining Ideas, President Obama as a senator was opposed to the surge. But you point out in there that you not only think that it was it was valuable at the time, but that in a way you think there might be some lessons that we can glean from that yeah. now for how we deal with ISIS. Explain that. 
Yeah, well, I think the first thing we have to do is, uh, Troy, is to make sure we don't forget the 2004 to 2007 piece. Um, the key decision at that time was debathification. I've asked a number of people who purport to be on the scene as to who was responsible for it. It seems it was not a presidential decision. It was certainly made when Bremer was in charge of it, Paul Bremer. Um, but whether or not there were people like Wolfowitz, people I don't even really know very well, or Cheney and so forth who were involved, the name Megan O'Sullivan came up from time to time. One can't pit that down, but what you can pin down is it seems to have been a sub-presidential decision. And I think even at the time, I thought it was epically wrong. Uh, this was a huge Bathist force. What you have to do is to get out in front of it and give it new leadership and direction, taking out the key operatives who were dangerous to you. But if you're trying to try and disenfranchise the entire infrastructure of a government, they're going to resent and hate you, and they're going to start giving out aid and comfort to the enemy. And so we have had, in effect, for that particular point, uh, basically two to three years of a real decline. But the point to stress about this is that if you'd made the right decision on the second period uh, and a right decision, if it was the right decision on the invasion, the world would have looked very different in 2006 and you would never have had a need for the surge because you would have been able to build on your earlier success. Okay, so let's take it from there then to the surge and that, that analogy that I mentioned that you've drawn that there, there may be – it's not an exact grafting that you're talking about, but that there may be some lessons that could be learned from the surge and applied to the situation we're facing now. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the surge was essentially George Bush's existential gamble. And he was opposed by everybody, including the now president of the United States and Joe Biden and a thousand of other people who said that all you're going to do is create antagonisms, resentments and so forth, and nothing whatsoever will be able to do it. The thing to do is to cut your losses and to get out. And, you know, I think he was right at the particular time. I thought he was right even going in. My own view about international affairs is I'm what you would call probably today a hawkish libertarian. I think that the use of force in order to respond to forces perfectly appropriate and that the only questions you're really worried about are side constraints, do you damage innocent people, and tactical questions about can you actually succeed with the program involved. And on that last point, what's very clear is unless you go in with overwhelming force, you're going to be chipped away by local circumstances. And it is also clear if you only go in with overwhelming forces, the social issues and conditions will completely get rid of everything. There is a very nice piece which I read in writing this thing uh, by David Petraeus on in the foreign affairs around 2013 explaining what he did and he constantly stressed the multi-pronged nature of this particular activity embedding people, restoring the rule of law, cleaning up the criminal system doing everything that you possibly could to mend frayed social institutions buying off people whom you'd rather kill to some extent because they were always against you and then beating the living hell out of the other guys after you've put all this stuff together and it seems to me that that program was able to work. There were huge battles in places like Fallujah and so forth. But essentially, by the time you got to early 2008, we were in a position where we can draw down the forces because we had stopped most of the problem. And now you were entering the stage of stabilization, having done a stage of major military operation. And I think, in effect, that if Obama had simply said, look, uh, the terrible situation that you have in Iraq is as follows. If we leave, it all falls to pieces. If we stay, 
we're going to have to use this terrible combination of promises and threats uh, to basically make sure that we buy off people on the one hand and beat them up when they don't want to be bought off and that we're in here for a very long time, perhaps forever. And that wholly, if you keep the kind of peace together, it means that you could maintain a united front against the rest of the world. It means you could export the oil. It means that you could get some kind of rehabilitation. And it's going to cost you, you know, 20, 30, 40 billion dollars a year in order to do this stuff. And I think it was a purchase that was well worth making. The moment it's clear that Obama is going to win, the situation starts to go south. Because at that particular point, people have remembered what he said when he was senator. And they're quite convinced that what he's going to do is, quote unquote, responsibly withdraw from Iraq under the circumstances to which my immediate reaction at the time was, we couldn't get out of Korea, we couldn't get out of Germany. Responsible withdrawal from stations that are much less stable than the ones we were talking about would be essentially an open invitation to disaster. The president does seem both now and then to have sort of a comprehensive revulsion at the idea of a prolonged American presence in these places around the world. One of his responses to the calls now to put troops on the ground in Syria to deal with the ISIS threat has been to say that that, that doesn't really solve the problem. I'm, actually, I'm going to read you a quote here from the president. This is from his speech in Turkey just uh, a week or two ago. Quote, what happens when there's a terrorist attack generated from Yemen? Do we then send more troops into there or Libya perhaps or if there's a terrorist network that's operating anywhere else in North Africa or in Southeast Asia? Close quote. How do you respond to that line of argument? Well, I mean the first thing you have to understand is there will be terrorist cells everywhere and you're going to have to do exactly what the French and the Belgians are doing to try to seek them out before and afterwards and nothing is going to change. Um, but you're not talking about in any of those places a situation in which territory the size of the United Kingdom is occupied by a savage force which brutalizes innocent people. And so you have to pick your targets carefully and you pick the major one first. If you can basically kill this thing at the root, the question is can you then slowly weaken all these peripheral operations and I think the answer is that you can um, but you don't simply try to solve everything at once and you certainly don't say since I don't know what the end of the road is going to be I'm not going to do anything at the beginning of the road the president of course has no end game if he continues with this current strategy of intensification with respect to air attacks and it turns out we get another Paris perhaps we get this Paris in London or something of that sort he's going to have the same kind of question so there's no veto point of the sort that he wants to think, no devastating counter-argument. Oh, the situation in Yemen is relatively stable. The Saudis seem to have a strong interest in that particular situation. If American forces need it, you probably won't need 50,000 men. You may need 5,000 men. Oh, what is very clear is that to draw down American military resources and to cut the various branches of government at a time when you're facing these kinds of world perils is, I think, really just wholly irresponsible. Um, in the 1950s, at the height of the Soviet thing, we had a defense budget which was 6% of GDP. Now it's under 2 as best I can recall. And, you know, if you double that, you're still way below the thing as it was. Uh, being the largest country in the world militarily does not guarantee you success because your enemies, even if they're much smaller than you, may take disproportionate forces in order to squash. Uh, but if you don't do that, just think of the kinds of losses that we have now in humanitarian terms, terms of loss of trade, terms of absolute demoralization and so forth. The strategy is clearly failing. And what he has to do is to understand that things that he rules out of bounds are wrong. I'm no general. I'm not going to tell him how to fight this particular land war. But if I'm not a general, 
He may be commander-in-chief, but he's no general either. And what he has to learn to do is on these substantive judgments is to take good advice from people whom he inherently doesn't trust. And you can't be president of the United States if your cabinet is Valerie Jarrett. Do you sense that the war weariness that we talked about amongst Americans over the last several years is dissipating? It does seem like President Obama is more decisively – out of step with the American people on this question than he has been on virtually any other foreign policy issue throughout his presidency. Yeah, well, I think the view was before that uh, the ISIS situation, the al-Qaeda situation was a Mideast problem. And, you know, as Adam Smith famously remarked in his moral sentiments, um, you may care more about your toenail than about somebody else's life. But once the migration started to come to Europe and once the killing started to take place, then all of a sudden the notion that we're going to be insulated from this stuff because we're distant became much weaker. People will worry about secret cells in the United States or somebody putting a bomb on an American plane when it leaves Athens or some other area which is close to the Middle East. So that nobody has any confidence in the invincibility of the United States or its ability to withdraw behind safe borders. And once those attitudes become, then people become more scared than weary. And that's the transformation that are taking place. The difficulty that I find is that the president did not attempt to articulate the case why it was in 2009 that he had been wrong two years before and that he would do steady as you go. I mean the problem that you have whenever you become a president is you don't get to start from scratch. You've inherited obligations from the previous administration whether you like it or not. And what you can't do is to say, you know, 2003 was a mistake. I'm going to go back and do now what I would have done if I had done what I think I should have done back in 2003. What you have to say is here's where we now stand. And I could tweak it a little bit this way or a little bit that way. But I cannot announce in advance a withdrawal, which is certainly going to mean that the other guys are just going to wait this thing out and then end with thunderous force. And you remember, um, it's a kind of an instructive situation. They had a they had a Shiite prime minister and they had a Sunni deputy prime minister. The day after the last American troop leaves, the Shiite arrests the Sunni guy and puts him in jail. And that's how long American influence remains when American influence is not around. And you just have to understand that. So this is a miserable set of choices. But just because the choice that you reject is miserable doesn't mean that it's worse than all the others. And in this case, I think, in effect, what he has done by the delay, even since the red line incidents in um, Syria, is he's made the situation 10 times more difficult for an aggressive and intelligent response than it would have been if he had been prepared to move earlier. The difficulty that you get when there's no Pax Americana is people start acting in non-cooperative fashions. They get into all sorts of conflagrations and brush fights. They shoot down other people's trains. So you don't know whether the Soviets or the Russians are going to fight with the Turks or whether or not the, Lemon, the Yemenis are going to plant a bomb in Mecca or God knows what can happen. And unless you have centralized leadership on this, you become a victim of events and that's what's happening to the United States now. Other people are beginning to sense it. But listening to the president talk, he just gets exasperated when people disagree with him. And it turns out it was very clear from that Turkish press conference that he did not win over an audience, many of whom were left-wing correspondents who had previously agreed with him. So final question, Richard. We've now got a little less than a year until President Obama's successor is elected, about 14 months until they're inaugurated. What does this fight look like if throughout that remaining time the president essentially sticks with what he's doing now? 
if everything just gets worse. We don't know whether it's going to be exponential or not, but it's quite clear that the leadership will pass uh, to other people. So Francois Hollande, or whatever he pronounces his name, will become the dominant player because he's prepared to do things. My guess is he will be prepared to commit troops to the ground if he had them to commit. Um, the British Cameron is going to start to move in. So it may well be that if the president's great strategy is we're not going to do it so everybody will rush in and take our place, uh, it may work, but I don't think it will work nearly as well as if we were to take over. So there's just a lot more volatility up or down. I can't conceive of any scenario which makes things better. I could conceive of some scenarios that keep things relatively stable and others that simply become too horrendous to bear. There will be enormous pressure upon the president if there's a repetition of something like this in England in particular or in the United States or God forbid in Canada or in Spain. Um, I don't think he'll be able to survive it. Same thing with Germany. So he's got a lot of worries on this stuff. People are going to be working at a fevered pace and try to break down the cells and so forth. But the bottom line about this, so long as the heart continues to pump, you can knock off some of the various exterior limbs and others will recreate themselves. Either you knock out the base and then go after the peripherals. But if you try to go after the peripherals and not knock out the base, and those guys have a fortune in oil money and they have the Iranians doing God knows what to them, for them or with them, um, you're going to be in very bad trouble indeed. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.